0: Bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. I'm Jacob Hoffman Andrews, and you're listening to the changelog. This is the changelog, and I'm your host Adam Stakoviak. This is episode 243, and today we're joined by Jacob Hoffman Andrews. Jacob is a senior staff technologist at the EFF. He's also the lead developer on Let's Encrypt which is the free and open automated certificate authority. We talked about the history of SSL, the start of Let's Encrypt, why it's important to encrypt the web and what happens if we don't, their project Certbot, and the impact Let's Encrypt has had on securing the web. We got three sponsors today, Linode, TopTao, and Rollbar first sponsor of the show is our friends at linode we host everything we do on linode servers head to linode.com slash changelog get one of the fastest most efficient ssd cloud servers ssd storage 40 gigabit network intel e5 processors use the code changelog 2017 20 bucks in credit head to linode.com slash changelog and now on to the show back we're talking to jacob Hoffman, andrews and jared this is a show we've wanted to do for a
1: while we've been using let's encrypt featured it in changelog weekly yeah just a huge ambitious project coming out of eff mozilla and others one that we're all behind and we are uh, grateful for and huge supporters of the let's encrypt initiative and all the technology behind it So, Jacob, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yeah,
2: thanks for all the kind words. Uh, You know, I think one of the best things about the Let's Encrypt project is just how much support we've gotten from the whole community out there.
1: So far, I mean, we would definitely define it as a, uh, so far, a massive success. I would, at least, from my perspective. Um, Of course, what is Let's Encrypt? It's, you know, free and automated certificate authority. And what do you do when you want something to be a huge and massive success? Well, starting off with free... Mm-hmm. Is a great way of yeah. of, of helping that along. Um, Jacob, why don't you just give us real quick, for the audience's sake, uh, an idea of your role with the project and what you do at the EFF? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I wear two
2: hats. Uh, one is as uh, the technical lead for uh, Let's Encrypt itself, which is uh, an independent nonprofit. Uh, and my other hat is as a senior staff technologist at EFF. Um, so... Uh, I wrote code for Boulder, which is the, uh, custom certificate authority software we wrote for let's encrypt.
1: So are you coding, uh, in your role often? I know you said you wrote Boulder. Is that your main thing, your only thing, or you have other things that you're coding?
2: Yeah, it's a a bunch of different stuff. And, you know, I'll correct that. I didn't write Boulder entirely myself. It's definitely been a collaborative effort from the very beginning. Um, you know, uh, most of my day uh, is coding generally, although it varies quite a bit. Uh, lately, I've been uh, doing some work on uh, documentation, both user facing documentation and uh, certificate authorities have to publish this kind of very formal document called a CPS that details all the ways in which they uh, validate certificates and issue certificates. And so we've been revising that so it's easier for everyone to read. Hmm. Um, and some of my time is also uh, spent engaging with standards communities. One of the interesting things about Let's Encrypt is it's based on a new IETF RFC, which um, to break through the uh, the jargony acronyms there, uh, it's an internet standard um, and it's getting close to standardization. And the cool thing about that is, uh, you know, someday other CAs will hopefully implement the same protocol and you'll be able to use software that works with a number of different CAs interchangeably.
1: Let's go back a bit and learn about the history. We always love to find out, like, what's the inception point or the, the origin story for projects like these, especially when they're big, ambitious projects. Yeah. We just had a show all about, you know, the Atom text editor, and uh, that's at home, not Atom. Uh, and Adam and I were, yeah. were, talking with uh, Nathan about that, and. We we just asked like it's such an ambitious goal. What they're when you're starting a text editor pretty much from scratch, um, it's a long term thing. And so how do you how does it start and then how do you plan out? I would say that this initiative to encrypt the entire web, and then like the machinations of how you actually go about promoting and doing that, is you know even more ambitious. So can you tell us the how yeah. it all started? Yeah.
2: Well, I'll tell you my personal story of uh, you know how I joined the movement to encrypt the web. Um, you know, I had been uh, a, a follower and supporter of EFF for many years, um, and you know, they EFF uh, had been uh, promoting this notion of you know encrypt the web, the whole thing. You know, it's got to be encrypted all the time to make users safe for a while, and I'd been kind of following that along. And in uh, October 2010, uh, I was working at Twitter at the time. And uh, Eric Butler published this Firefox extension called Firesheep. And it did this clever thing. It took an attack that everybody already knew about and made it really accessible and obvious. So the problem with HTTP, which is the non-encrypted version of HTTPS, uh, is that somebody with network access can sniff your web browsing as it goes by, and that includes not only what pages you're visiting, but also your cookies. And your cookies, you know, when you're logged into a website are what authenticate you to the site. So if you can copy somebody's cookie, you can become them. Uh, So FireSheep demoed this uh, by, you know, you would install the extension uh, and it would sniff the local network for people visiting Facebook, Twitter, a number of other sites, Uh you could even write your own rules. And it would make it really easy, and it would pop up not only people's handles, but their avatars. And you could say, oh, who's this? This person's on the network. I want to become them. And you just double-click on it, it sets your cookies, and suddenly you're in their account. So I was thinking, you know, wow, this is, this is a really good demonstration of why we need HTTPS. And we're at kind of this unique tipping point in the history of the web where HTTPS has gotten cheap enough to implement, you know, um, I think Gmail had just recently uh, enabled it for Gmail access, and had uh, kind of published a, a blog post saying, "Hey, this is actually pretty cheap and easy." Um, and you know, combined with that, there was this uh, this demonstration of why it was so important. So I uh, started working within Twitter to make all of Twitter HTTPS, uh, and you know, I expected that to be a three-month project. It wound up taking about a year uh, wow. in the process. I moved on to the security team and became a security
1: expert, which I wasn't Why before. did it take? Like, why did it like take? You know, three times what you thought, or four times what you thought.
2: Yeah, so there were there are a number of interesting obstacles. I think you know, for any site moving to HTTPS, one of the tricky things is, is what's called mixed content. Mm. So you know, the web, you know, when you load a web page, it's not just the one URL. It includes a lot of other stuff. Yeah, it brings images, uh, iframes. Video, JavaScript, CSS. Um, so you might have an HTTPS URL for the page, but an HTTP URL for the images or the JavaScript or the Flash. Even back then, Flash was more of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, browsers treat that specially uh, because you know they want to be able to say this page load is securely encrypted or not. And if the main page is HTTPS, but the JavaScript isn't, it's not safe because somebody can just man in the middle of that JavaScript and replace it with something malicious. Uh, So if we had just gone straight to HTTPS right away, uh, we would have gotten a lot of these mixed content warnings. So first we had to fix up all the internal uh, URLs. uh, So they would also be HTTPS. But the big problem then was... There was a lot of third-party content, so you know if you tweeted a YouTube video, for instance, or um, mm-hmm. a Flickr image, it would the page would load JavaScript and images from this third-party source. So we had to make sure all those third-party sources had HTTPS, wow. and some of them didn't yet, and so we had to go bug them. So that was kind of on the mixed content front. The other interesting thing was we were deploying a new uh, load balancer at the time, and uh, there's some concern about uh, how load balancing HTTPS to the old front ends would work. Uh, So, you know, we waited on the deploy of that so we could really scale it up and be faster.
0: You mentioned the cost uh, had become low enough to implement SSL or Mm -hmm. to implement HTTP2. What does involve... HTTPS, sorry. Not two. Mm -hmm. My bad. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, What's the... What's the actual cost behind that to make it? So you, your example was Gmail, and they said that mm-hmm. the it become you know low cost enough to actually implement. What's the cost to bear when doing this at that level?
2: Yeah, so there's I think let's say maybe three main costs I like to talk about. You know, the one that used to be a big deal that people you know thought was a big deal was CPU cost. So you know, encryption was expensive. And if you enabled it for all your users, you know you might see a big spike in the amount of CPU you used, which would mean you'd have to buy more machines sooner. Um, but computers were getting faster. Uh, and so one of the key figures that Gmail published in their blog post was 1%. They found that the CPU usage went up only 1% after turning on HTTPS for all their users. Um, and one of the interesting things about You know, cryptography is, you know, the computers getting faster means that they can do the encryption faster. It also means that, you know, somebody trying to break encryption can go faster and try to break it faster, but Mm -hmm. not at the same rate, right? So it's not like, oh, Mm -hmm. encryption got twice as weak when the uh, computers got uh, twice as fast. Uh, I mean... In some very technical way you can you know brute force twice as fast but the margin right. of difficulty is high enough that uh, we're still safe
1: yeah because I mean the whole point of, the whole point of the process is it's easy to calculate on the one side and it's really hard on the other and so you'd your processor speed uh, your wins are bigger than your losses in terms of that the, the one that I always thought about was the network cost or the the connection cost is that is mm. your, your number two yeah
2: yeah so actually it's a good point I should Bump the list to four. Um, so, you know, in terms of performance, uh, you know, what somebody sees when they're loading your web page, uh, there's a bit of a performance cost uh, for the handshake. So normally when you connect to a website, uh, you do a, a regular TCP handshake, um, which is costs about one and a half round trip times or RTTs. Uh, So that can be commonly on the order of like 150 milliseconds, depending on your connection. Uh, When you connect to HTTPS, on top of the regular TCP handshake, you also need to do a TLS handshake. Uh, TLS is the encryption protocol that underlays HTTPS. So that adds another one or two round trips uh, to that first page load. Um, That can be mitigated somewhat uh for reconnects so you know if you're connecting to a page for the second time you can take advantage of some cached information and bring that down to one round trip time Um, so there's you know a, a slightly increased uh time to load cost for https on the order of you know tens to hundreds of milliseconds depending on how bad your connection is uh but you mentioned HTTP2 earlier, and I think uh, this is a really good uh, time to introduce what HTTP2 is. Um, do you want to talk a little about HTTP2?
0: Sure, yeah.
2: Um, so, uh, one of the big problems with HTTP1 is that you only get to request one resource at a time. So, you have to request it and wait for the full response, and then request it, request another one, wait for another full response. Um, and so, in order to load pages faster, browsers started opening multiple connections to the same host, uh, and so they would kind of get this simultaneous download advantage. Uh, but this doesn't. It ha- this has a number of flaws, and I, I won't go into the flaws in a ton of detail. Uh, I think you could do a whole show on HTTP 2. But the gist of it is, you know, we needed a protocol revision that would let browsers request a whole bunch of stuff and servers to kind of send it back as it came in. Uh, And and that allows a really big performance win. Uh, So that protocol was originally called Speedy. Uh, It got standardized and it's now called HTTP2. And one of the tricky things about it is it's such a radical departure from how HTTP1 was encoded that it wasn't really practical to deploy over HTTP because you have a number of what's called middle boxes. So these are Machines that sit on a network and try to intercept traffic, especially HTTP traffic, and do something to it. They might be caching, they might be siphoning off a copy for inspection, uh, they might be scanning for viruses. But a lot of these middle boxes screw up HTTP in various ways, or they don't cleanly pass through things they don't recognize. So the implementers of HTTP2 decided that it would only be supported on encrypted connections because... middle boxes can't generally interfere with those. Uh, It was the only practical way to deploy it. So what that means is today, the incentives are a little flipped. You actually get a performance win from using HTTPS, because if you do, the browsers accessing your site uh, can upgrade to HTTP2, and so you get all these great multiplexing wins.
1: So... That was, that was a very nice summary, by the way. We do have uh, a show. Adam, I didn't get a chance to pull it up, but Ilya Grigorik, uh has talked to, to us on a show about HTTP2. So for those interested want to go deep into that, Ilya knows tons about HTTP2. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't have a show number, so just – we do have a search function now on our website, which people have been asking for. Just go there and search that. You'll find that episode, and uh, it's very good. So you were going through your number list of you. – oh,
0: cool episode 161, so changelaw.com slash 161. Cool. Did you use our search function? I did. Very nice. Very nice. That's dog food in Well, the, the only problem is I'll say it here on air is that I had to put the slash in there. So there's two searches. Technically you could do HTTP two
1: or slash two, you know, so well, that's the hmm. people that named its fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fault. So you're, you're going through the costs and yeah. I assume the next one is going to be cost, you know, to purchase a certificate. Yep. That's got to be in there. Right. So. Uh, yep. continue down that path and then we're going to get close to our break. We want to get to the point where you've, you know, joined the initiative. So get us there. Sounds but good, yeah. t- tell us about, tell us about that cost because that's, that's a big one for, not for the Googles of the world, but it's big for, uh, small and independent site owners.
2: Totally. So, you know, uh, it used to be the case that you'd have to pay a certificate authority. You know, there are only for profit certificate authorities. You'd have to pay them to get a cert. And, uh, when SSL, which was the predecessor to TLS, uh, was first developed, uh, certificate authorities were rare, and it was uncommon to even get a certificate, and so they charged a lot. Could be on the order of hundreds of dollars. You know, in 2010, you could get a certificate from a commercial CA for on the order of $15, which is a lot less, but it's still, you know, it's not nothing, and Uh, especially if you're running, say, an open source project and you're not paid for it. uh, You balance that against do I really want to bother. In 2010, there were a couple of other, uh, not a couple of other, there were a couple of uh, commercial CAs that did have a free product. So you could get a free certificate from uh, StartSSL. Actually, I think StartSSL was the only one at the time and WoSign started up later with their free offering. Uh, But, It was really difficult to use, and that's kind of a nice segue into the fourth and what I think is the most important cost of implementing HTTPS, and that's uh, human time. Uh, You know, it's uh, HTTPS and TLS configuration is a really arcane specialty, and you know, most people don't you know have that specialty, and you know, shouldn't have to learn it necessarily. But with older CAs, you had to learn a certain amount about you know what even a certificate is and how to install it correctly, and how to configure your cipher suites. And there's a lot of ways you can mess it up in ways that are just really hard to figure out what's wrong. And it just it takes time. You know, even if you spend the time to learn it, you know, even for an expert, we actually did a, a couple of informal experiments. We had, you know, an experienced developer try to set up a certificate on their website during the lead up to launching Let's Encrypt, and uh, you know, it took them, I think, three hours. And, you know, so at a certain point, you just start to think this is not worth it.
0: It's a a difficult task, that's for sure.
2: Yeah. So, you know, and this was all in the context of, you know, we started this branch of the conversation uh, talking about working at Twitter. You know, we had dozens of certificates we had to manage and, you know, we had a pretty big engineering staff at the time, but, you know, even then we would screw it up from time to time, you know, would forget to renew a certificate or would misconfigure one. Uh, And it consumed a lot of time from some skilled engineers. Um, So those are the things that kind of got in the way. But eventually uh, we turned it on. And, you know, the cool thing now is if you use Twitter, you don't even have to think about HTTPS. It's just, it just
1: happens for you. So you spent that year at Twitter getting them on, you know, HTTPS. And then at a certain point, the Let's Encrypt initiative and the EFF um, either came to you or you came to them. uh, Get us there.
2: Yeah, so I came to uh, EFF. uh, I was thinking, you know, I really want to reach out and do more for the web in general. Um, And uh, at the same time I had been working on HTTPS, uh, some folks within EFF and within Mozilla had independently been trying to get uh, a certificate authority started uh, for kind of the same reasons, right? They saw the need to encrypt the web. Uh, They saw that the... Lack of free certificates from a nonprofit automated CA was an obstacle, and they wanted to improve that. Um, so I joined up and started working on the project. And uh, you know, in 2015, uh, we launched. Uh, we started a beta, I think, in September or October, a closed beta, and then we opened it up to the public in December. Uh, and since then, you know, it's just been kind of like a rocket uh, on fire. Yeah. Yeah, we've uh, issued, uh, well, you know, the main stat we count is not uh, the number of certificates we've issued, uh, but the number of certificates active. Um, and mm-hmm. there's some reasons for that around a uh, certificate lifetime. But the number of active certificates issued by Let's Encrypt is about 30 million at this point.
0: Wow, that's huge. That's 30 million sites or and or servers that previously were not being encrypted and previously Subjected to this potential man in the middle issue, whether it's the, depending upon the service, obviously, but
2: mm-hmm. they're at risk. Yeah, yeah. so well, some they could of them have been using other. That's those.
0: true. That's true. They could have been using others, yeah. but obviously, still, uh, yeah. maybe half so, aren't.
2: Well, actually, a lot, uh, a lot more than that. Um, a colleague of mine actually did this analysis. Uh, we can talk about um, CT logging uh, in a little bit, but basically, there's enough data available to publicly, publicly to make an estimate of what percent of these certs are to sites that are newly encrypted. Wow. Uh and he found that it was over ninety percent. Wow. That's huge. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that was right Excellent. Jerry. Pretty close to right. For the yeah, first yeah, time close. ever. It's in an order of You're <laughs> pretty close. Pretty close. Uh cool. Well we're hitting up against our uh our first break. On the other side we'll get into the nuts and bolts. What's it take to be a certificate authority? What is Boulder? We'll talk about the Acme spec and cert bot right after this our friends at TopTile are longtime supporters of this
0: show if you've ever had to quickly scale your team you know how hard it is you have to go through all this hassle of writing job descriptions adding them to your website or maybe you have to hire somebody just to go out there and find the candidates for you that's a lot of work a ton of work that you don't have to do if you call my friends at top they do all the work for you to find the right candidates for your positions Plus, because they have a very rigorous screening process to identify the best, you know you're only getting qualified candidates for your open positions. Head to toptal.com to learn more. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Tell them Adam from the Change sent you. If you'd like a more personal introduction, email me,
1: adam at changelog.com. And now back to the show. All right, we're back with Jacob and Jacob. I'm assuming it's a lot of work to set up a certificate authority. Uh, is that fair to say? And, and take us through it. What does what all does it require? And what, have, yeah. what work have you and, and everybody involved put into it?
2: Yeah, so you're definitely right. It's a lot of work. Um, and I'll go through a bunch of the stuff. And I should clarify, you know, a lot of this was not by, done by me. There's a whole team uh, that spent a lot of work doing this. So the first question is, you know, sort of to be a certificate authority, you know, it doesn't mean much. You could become a certificate authority today. You can create a CA certificate on your own machine and issue your own certs, but nobody would trust them, right? If you loaded that on a web page, people would get a warning when they reached it. So, you need your root root CA certificate to be in trust stores. So that's in operating systems or browsers or things like Java. Um, on Linux, you, there's usually a package called CA Certificates that ships down a bunch of these trust anchors. Um, and the problem is, you know, even if you were to convince all of those, so we call them root programs, you know, the programs that manage who gets to be a CA and who doesn't, even if you convince them all simultaneously to let you in today, there's all the older software that doesn't yet trust your root CA Certificate. Uh, so the usual way around this is what's called cross-signing. You get somebody who's already a CA uh, to sign your root CA certificate or an intermediate uh, and essentially vouch for you and say, this organization knows how to safely issue certificates, You know, and based on our existing presence in these root stores, uh, certificates from them should be trusted. So that's step one, finding somebody to cross-sign for you. So Let's Encrypt was very lucky to find Identrust, who is willing to cross-sign for us. Uh, And so, you know, even if you are running an operating system that, you know, was built years before Let's Encrypt existed, uh, you can still, your browser will still load Let's Encrypt certificates successfully because of that cross-signature. Now, in order to get that uh, cross-signature, you have to meet a certain number of requirements and uh, pass a certain number of audits. So, you know, first, obviously, you have to generate your keys uh, and your certs. Um, You want to generate those keys in an an HSM or hardware security module. And the whole point of a hardware security module is to store uh, crypto keys in a way such that even if somebody, you know, hacked you to bits, uh, they still wouldn't be able to make off with the keys. They might be able to trick your HSM into signing something incorrectly, but they wouldn't be able to go make a copy of your private key. Uh, so once you've generated those certs safely and you know written down all the steps you took, or rather, first you write down the steps you're going to take, then you follow them all in what's called a key ceremony. Uh, you do it all in video, and you have audit just check that
1: you did it all. Correctly. Really, it's all videotaped. Yep, it's wow. part sounds of like the a audit trail. It's like a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> the key ceremony, the videotape. Yeah, That's true, Jared. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, I was telling uh, our ops folks who performed the ceremony, you know, they should have robes and candles, but uh, I don't think they did. Uh, <laughs> Might have set off the fire suppression system in the data center.
0: Mm. <laughs> it seems that this process could, could get political, too, since there's such a, almost like a, a good old boys. I live here in Texas, so that term's pretty common around here. Good old boys or insiders or this protected ring or circle of trust, so to speak, is it, is that the case? Is that, is it, Um, is it, is it purely technical, you know, like you had mentioned, you know, the different processes to do it. Is it, is it political? Is it technical?
2: Well, so, you know, I think there's a a couple of questions, you know, one is, you know, can you get a cross signature and two is, you know, can you get into the root programs? Right. So, Uh you know, it's definitely possible to start a CA and not get a cross signature, but just apply directly to the root programs and wait. But you know you're going to have to wait many years before your certificates can be used in practice. Um, so usually it's a matter of uh, you know buying an existing CA or paying a CA to cross sign for you. Um, so I think definitely you know that's uh, it's a barrier to starting up a new CA, mm-hmm. especially if you want to be broadly trusted right away.
1: Um, and what you about mentioned the capitalistic pressures from the other vendors, the other CAs who are selling certs and now here comes one that's going to give them all away surely there was some pushback or perhaps political machinations around the fact that here comes a free one right
2: yeah you know we have seen some uh criticisms uh from other cas and actually i think more frequently from uh, certificate resellers um you know blog posts with like list of reasons why let's encrypt is bad you know Mm -hmm. some are inaccurate uh and sometimes they are you know, legitimate disagreements about you know what a CA's role is, or you know what's valuable. You know, one of the big differences between Let's Encrypt and a lot of the larger commercial CAs is we only do what's called domain validation. We don't do uh, extended validation, so mm-hmm. DV and EV for short. So domain validation is where to get a cert from Let's Encrypt, it's a domain validated cert. You just have to prove you control the domain for what for which you want the cert. Um, if you wanted an extended validation cert from another CA, you'd have to not only prove you control the domain in the cert, uh, you'd also have to prove, you know, who you are, what sort of business entity you are, where mm. you're based in, you know, show mm-hmm. them a lot of documents and so on.
1: And the advantage of that one is browser. I mean, the browsers change how they do these things all the time, but at a certain point, at least, they would make a big green, you know, thing in the address bar as opposed to a little yellow lock symbol. And so it's kind of the the incentive for a site owner to go through the extended validation is to, you know, improve their truck, make their make them look even more trustworthy to right. browsers. Right. Yep. But you guys only do the domain one because it's too much uh, manpower to do the EV or.
2: Yeah, that's essentially it. Um, you know, our, our whole thing is about, you know, being free and being automated and easy to use and you know if step 30 of the certificate issuance process is now fax your passport to this you know particular (laughs) phone number yeah and you know then we'll call your lawyers and they'll check at the better business bureau Mm -hmm. if you actually exist uh that's that's not easy to use that's not
1: hard
0: to automate uh, that that. who needs that kind of level of assert though is i mean it's there for a reason who needs that
2: um, so I think opinions differ on, you know, the role of EV and how important it is. Um, you know, I think the, um, for folks who, are, who really uh, believe in EV, I think the claim there is uh, it helps with phishing, right? So one of the problems with phishing is basically you t- if you type your password into a site whose domain name doesn't exactly match the domain name you thought you were typing it into... It's game over. Somebody else has your password and they can access your accounts. Um, right. But people are notoriously bad at comparing domain names, right? you get a dot out of place, you get an L that looks like an I, and it's really easy to spoof people. So with EV, folks want to emphasize like a business name, you know, in kind of natural language. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, that's... It, I think users tend to be relatively insensitive to additional UI uh Stuff. bits like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Are I you talking about like turn
0: how turn the back. in the in the URL bar like the business name will show up?
1: Right. Uh, yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, so GitHub uses that then. I mean that's that's right. common for all of us so they have an EV.
1: Yep. Okay. I believe they do. Definitely. Yeah.
2: But so I would say, you know, for most sites I wouldn't really worry about EV. Uh, It it doesn't affect the quality of the encryption uh, that you have on your site. And it also doesn't impact the quality of the validation of the domain names in the CERT. Um, Mm. So it's kind of the same process in terms of validating the domain names and that ownership that's done for both EV and DV.
1: Most users do not even know that there's a way they can identify a site as as encrypted or not encrypted let alone as the you know ev versus non ev encryption and so the goal is let's get all the sites encrypted because people won't know one way or the other Mm -hmm. and so the ev i think it's a clout thing like or it's like a it's kind of like you know pimping your ride uh if you're a (laughs) big business forget who makes sense it looks cooler you know it's there uh, that's the only reason why i think uh uh it would be attractive to me because like like Jacob said, the encryption is the same. It just shows yeah. that you took you went the extra mile to be audited more more thoroughly than than other sites did. Yeah.
2: So one of the interesting points there, you know, Google Chrome has done a lot of really uh, cool user research on usability of security indicators. And you know, one of the results they found, and I think other researchers have found, is that users don't tend to notice the absence of a security indicator. Right. Like people don't notice that the green lock is absent. Right. They do notice when something is present that says, oh, this is actually bad. Like if the safe browsing page pops up and says, this site might be phishing or this might be mm-hmm. malware, they notice that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the long-term goal for uh, Chrome and I believe also for Firefox uh, is something called HTTP bad. So instead of marking HTTPS as better, they'll mark HTTPS as normal and HTTP
0: as unsafe. I saw this article on Wired. I linked it up behind the scenes to Jared. This may be something you're familiar with, Jacob, but it was talking about this user experience of exactly what you're talking about, whether or not it's present and how they can best go about making general web users aware of whether the site they're on is encrypted or not or secure or not.
2: Yeah, um, so both Chrome and Firefox recently rolled out kind of phase one of HTTP BAD which is uh, specifically if a page has a credit card or password entry form and it's HTTP, it'll get that new marking that says, hey, this is unsafe.
0: Mm. There's times, too, I actually put in uh, like a username and password into a site that I've done the check. I know that the URL is correct, but for whatever reason, they don't have that page secure. And I'm like, well, I mean, I look at the value of what the service actually is and it's like, what what do they have of mine that, I got to worry about this. So, like, what do you say to something like that where even when the little pop-up comes up and says, hey, this is not encrypted, you're putting your password across the wire. Are you sure you want to continue? And you're like,
2: okay. <laughs> I, You know, <laughs> I, I think you're, you're wise to think twice about yeah. entering passwords and sites like those. I think, you know, I'd recommend anyone who has need of a site that doesn't encrypt its passwords should definitely... Uh, send email to their support staff and say this is a really big security problem you need to fix it
0: and that's why let's encrypt is in place is to
1: there's no more excuses get, right? there's no more excuses i mean get, get your cert do it right. <laughs> let's, let's move on a little bit from the uh, ca requirements because uh they are many and interesting for sure but just to keep it moving along um let's talk about and boulder jacob you want to go into boulder because it's your guys implementation of the certificate authority there may or may not be interesting things to talk about there up to you
2: yeah so um you know to talk about boulder i think first we have to talk about acme you know so yep uh we had a number of goals with let's encrypt and you know one of the ones that gets the most attention is of course free certs and automated certs uh Mm -hmm. but you know we also want to bring about interoperability right so you know if Let's Encrypt becomes the CA that everybody uses, it's a single point of failure, right? You know, If for whatever reason it fails, it's terrible news for the internet. Uh, and instead, we want an ecosystem of software that's able to automatically issue certs and keep them up to date uh, and can get them from a variety of CAs. Uh, and so that's kind of the birth of the ACME protocol. It's a backronym for... Automated Certificate Management Environment. It's also a nod to the uh, Roadrunner cartoons. Uh, so, oh
1: yeah, yeah, well, All of Wiley Coyote's stuff was Acme, right? Yeah, All exactly. of this material. A backronym. That's when you start with uh, You started with Acme and said, "What can we figure out that makes this work?" Yep. Yeah, that's
2: fun. So, you know, Acme uh, was developed kind of alongside Boulder, uh, and it's still in standardization at IETF. Uh, you can join the Acme working group and give feedback. Uh, We're in working group last call right now, which means we think it's pretty much done and we're kind of sanding off the rough edges. So because Acme was a new protocol, of course we needed to write new code to support it. Um, The most popular CA software out there in industry is called uh, EJBCA or Enterprise Java Beans Certificate Authority. Um, But we decided to start from scratch um, largely because we're implementing this new protocol Um, You know, we wanted to use Go for both memory safety and performance reasons, Uh, you know, certainly we didn't want to write in C. Java would also have been an option, Uh, but, you know, Go felt like the the right choice at the time. And I'm I'm glad we made that choice because it's been a real pleasure to work with. Um, So Boulder takes care of, okay, first, you know, in the Acme protocol, you have to create an account uh, and, you know, this can be created automatically by software running on your web server. Uh, then you say, I want a certificate for these domains. Uh, and the server says, okay, great. Uh, here's what you need to do to prove that you own or control those domains. Uh, and there's three ways you can do it. Uh, they're called challenges in Acme. Uh, so one is the HTTP challenge. So it says here, basically this is a file I want you to create and I want you to put it at a certain path on your web server under Mm -hmm. slash dot well-known. So well-known files are this, you know, newish spec to, you know, you know about robots.txt, right? Right. So everybody knows where robots.txt is, but, you know, we don't want to keep adding files at the top level of web servers and everybody has to know they're special and has to prevent randos from uploading them. So, Hmm now that place is slash dot well-known so when protocols need to register a certain path it's under there so that's http challenge okay
1: is there anybody else doing that besides you guys it it sounds like it's becoming standardized but is there anything else that goes in because this is the only occurrence for me personally of seeing anything get put in slash dot well-known
2: yeah there's uh there are a few um you know it's starting slowly but definitely i've seen other new Hmm. protocols uh, establish that it's uh, it's a handy thing. There was actually um, a talk I just watched from Brad Hill at Enigma about better account recovery. Uh, and part, part of the protocol he was developing involved putting a certain file at a
1: well-known URL. Very cool. We should use that for our repos on GitHub and instead of the uh, file files, you know, like uh, gem file, uh, docker mm. file. Uh, star file. We should just have a dot files or something and put right. everything in there. <laughs> you know, it's your junk drawer. It sounds like a good yeah. idea. Definitely for web servers, though. Continue. We we, we cut yeah. you off.
2: Okay. So there's there's two others. There's um, the DNS challenge, which says, you know, put this special token value in a DNS text record uh, under your domain, uh, and then there's the TLS SNI challenge, uh, which is, take this token value, wrap it in a temporary cert, and we're going to attempt to connect over TLS to your site and ask for that. And we want you to echo back that value plus you know, an additional validation value uh, in the cert itself. So once you've uh, proven control of your domain or domains, uh, Boulder will then sign a certificate and send it back to you. Um, Boulder also incorporates uh, some of the other important aspects of what a CA does. So uh, OCSP is one of the important things we have to do. Uh, It stands for Online Certificate Status Protocol. And that's how you can find out if a certificate has been revoked. Uh So a CA will sign a blob of data that says, this certificate's still good or this certificate's been revoked. And you can request that via HTTP. Uh, so Boulder offers OCSP services, and it also uh, sends out expiration mail when your cert's about to
1: expire. Very cool. So you have Acme, which is the specification. You have Boulder, which is, I would think it server-side. It's the certificate authority software. And then on the client side, the ones who are requesting certificates, uh, you have CertBot. Yeah.
2: So one of the – yeah, absolutely. It, I would say, of course, you know, there's – actually dozens of clients, which is one of the really cool things about Acme is that anybody because, can go. And yeah.
1: Cause it's spec, So anybody can read the spec and just implement the spec and there you go. Yeah.
2: But yeah, we're especially proud of Certbot. It was the first client because it was co-developed with Acme and Boulder. And I think probably the most ambitious, you know, most of the clients tend to be focused on get your cert and then, you know, it's hands off. Um, Certbot really wants to eliminate some of that human cost of getting and installing a cert, uh, and in particular, installing it. So with CertBot, you know, it knows about the config formats for both Apache and Nginx. And so you, know, you can install CertBot and just say, give me the certs. I want the certs. And it will work with Apache and Nginx. It'll actually reconfigure them to answer those challenges. And then once it's got the certs, it'll stick those certs in the Apache or the Nginx config files. So you, know, you can have just a single command run it, and it works.
1: It's pretty magical. That's awesome. Oh, and including the the updating, like the 90-day the yeah. uh, key updating?
2: Yep. So certbot has this uh, command renew, and so you just put certbot renew in your crontab, or if you're using you know a packaged copy of certbot for your operating system, usually it'll install the crontab itself. And so that'll run actually twice a day and say, okay, is there anything that's expiring 30 days from now? If so, you know, Get it again,
1: renew it. Yeah, that's excellent. Serbot Sur- has a homepage at serbot.eff.org. Just have to mention, I didn't have a question about this. I just wanted to say there's a there's a little like wizard around uh, installation and where you pick which software you're using, uh, which operating system you're on, and it will tell you the instructions for getting Serbot all set up specific to your web server and your Linux distribution or if you're on uh, Unix or what have you. Mm-hmm. Very cool. It, you know, we talked about how successful this effort is has been and is being uh, at the top of the show i said well you make it free that's a good start you know free plus easy is is usually a recipe recipe yeah. for a win and so certbot you know the as the first client it started off not so easy right like of course private mm-hmm. beta public beta things are buggy things are more are difficult but it seems like you guys have really gone the extra mile especially with like you hit this page and you know exactly how to get certbot set up for your specific scenario It seems like you guys are really trying to make this easy on people.
2: Yeah, that's job one, right? Just make it super easy, allow more people
0: to do it. I could be just an idiot, but one time I did try to use Let's Encrypt on a DigitalOcean server when we were running WordPress. So this is probably about 12 months ago, at least about a year ago. And I was using a DigitalOcean tutorial to do it, and I got stuck, and Mm -hmm. I could not do it. So I, I don't know if I'm the idiot or if the tutorial was just dated, but... I was lost. So this yeah. is helpful now, the CertBot.
2: Uh, yeah, I think, you know, uh, there's definitely, there's always more work to be done on CertBot. Certainly there's a lot of places you can get stuck. And uh, definitely there are a lot of tutorials from the early days of CertBot uh, where like a lot of stuff has changed since then. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, they have a lot of page rank because people were really excited and they
1: linked to them a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah I think can backfire sometimes.
2: Yeah, I think now... Probably the best tutorials are on the CertBot page, but you know, uh, if you find one that you think is better, send us a pull request and make our documentation better too.
1: Let's talk a little bit about uh, the expiration and the renewing. So um, on the easy side, uh, sometimes it's easy to get set up, but then you have this 90-day renewal, and if you don't have software that automates everything, because you want it to be automated, but there are circumstances today, for instance, uh, if you're on Heroku... If you're using S3, like static web hosting, you still have to mm-hmm. take the challenge, upload the file to the well-known directory, and get that renewal. And because it's every 90 days, instead of perhaps once a year, it's actually, for certain of our sites that I manage, has kind of increased my, <laughs> my overhead <laughs> of how much time Jared has to put into it, which is fine for now, because I'm, I'm assuming eventually those will be automated. But tell us about the 90 days. What's the What's the reasoning behind such a short window? And then let's talk about automation a little
2: bit. So, you know, one of the things that's really unique about Acme, of course, is that it allows automation uh, and, in fact, encourages it. So it's more feasible to do something every 90 days. Then there's also, you know, this question of, uh, is 90 days better, right? So one of the the things that really... uh, Motivated us in thinking about this was thinking back to 2014 with when Heartbleed came out. So Heartbleed was this terrible vulnerability in OpenSSL that would just leak memory out to random users on the web. And uh, it was figured out that this could include private keys. And so that meant that you know most of the private keys on the internet were potentially... Uh, Compromised uh, at that time, and it, but it was kind of impossible to know which ones specifically were, uh, and a lot of sites rotated their keys at that time, uh, but a lot just didn't get the memo, and so you know for a pretty long amount of time there were still you know keys available on the web that had been served using vulnerable versions of OpenSSL. If you have a large ecosystem of Let's Encrypt clients that are reissuing every sixty days, you know with that thirty-day buffer. You know, the window of exposure to one of these kind of internet-wide bugs is a lot less, uh, assuming they're rotating their keys at the same time they renew. Uh, so that's a big benefit uh, to 90-day certs. Uh, and it also encourages automation. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, what we've seen from a lot of listing providers is that, you know, they uh, they have wanted to help automate this for their customers uh, because it's, it's really a big win. Um, whereas I think, you know, if we had chosen the traditional year-plus time window, uh, you would see a lot of hosting providers saying, oh, we don't really care. You can go through this really tedious process once a year of uploading the file and running the client yourself. Uh, and that's really not the experience we want for people. We want hosting providers to just turn it on for you. We want most people to never have to think about HTTPS. Hmm. Um, and I think you know we're getting there. I think more and more hosting software is incorporating that, Um, I know WordPress has a Let's Encrypt plugin now um, and also WordPress.com, the paid hosted version of WordPress, uh, they're a Let's Encrypt sponsor uh, and they automatically issued for everyone who has a hosted domain with them. So if you use their service, you have HTTPS. You didn't even have to like check a button, check a box. Uh, and that's, I think, the future of the web is it just works.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What about at the web server level? Uh, during the breaks, we were talking about Caddy, which is a, a Go web server that has integrated that Let's Encrypt. Uh, we've had shows with Matt Holt on Caddy, both on the changelog and on GoTime. Um, so that's a great instance yeah. of like, well, if Caddy has it, then you just get it for free if you're if you're using Caddy as your web server. But what about the big ones? Like, can you get it integrated into Nginx? Could you get it inside Apache? So there's mm-hmm. you don't even have to have a separate client that integrates into them. You just have it. Inside of your nginx,
2: yeah, Caddy is great. I, I really think like that's how we want the Let's Encrypt experience to work. You know, it's HTTPS first, uh, and that's considered mm-hmm. a core part of the web browsing experience. Um, you have definitely talked to uh, folks from the Apache and nginx projects, and you know they're supportive uh, so far. I think the approach has been. This is most appropriate as kind of this external configurator for now. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's some obstacles in the uh, Apache module system that make it relatively hard to give as smooth an experience as Caddy would. Um, Mm. But I think in the long term, you know, I I would like to think that's a possibility that Mm. the major web servers could just integrate Acme support and it just works
0: we're coming up on our next break. So when we come back, let's talk about like next challenges being faced, maybe even some public awareness in terms of like how the community can kind of step in and help this mission of encrypting the web. So we'll take this break. We'll be right back. Rollbar puts errors in their place. Full stack error tracking for all applications in any language And I talked to Brian Rude, the CEO and co-founder of Rollbar, deeply about what Rollbar is, what problem it solves, and why you should use it. Take a listen
1: how do you build software faster? Like, how do you build better software faster? Um, and there are like, there are tons and tons of, of aspects to that. Like, in Ruby, is like, the, you have a better language, you can have
2: better frameworks that help you be more expressive and more productive. So the flip side of that is like, after you've built something that works, or at least mostly works, how do you like, go about getting it from working to like, in production and actually working? How do you cover the edge cases? How do you find things you missed? How do you iterate on it quickly? And that's kind of where what we're trying to do comes in. So we're trying to say, after you've shipped your software,
1: you're not done. You know you still there's still work to do and we want to help make that process of
2: maintaining and polishing and and keeping things running smoothly be really 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 easy so like developers spend roughly half their time debugging right so anything we can do to make that process better is going to have a huge impact
0: all right that was brian ruse ceo and co-founder of rollbar sharing with you exactly why it fits why it works for you head to rollbar.com slash changelaw. You get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. That's basically 300,000 errors track totally for free. Give rollbar a try today. Again, head over to rollbar.com slash changelaw. All right, and we're back with Jacob Hoffman Andrews. Going deep on this idea of securing the web and what a fun mission. And sometimes, Jacob, to know where you're going, you kind of got to know where you came from. And in the In the breaks, I asked what I thought was a dumb question, and it turns out it's actually not that dumb. And it goes a little something like this. Why didn't we start with security first? Why didn't we start with, uh, I know you don't like the term SSL because that's going away, but why didn't we start with a secure internet versus an insecure internet?
2: Cool. Well, actually, you've got two questions there. Uh, I actually have no problem with the term SSL. Uh, I tend to use TLS myself, but I think... You know, in the battle of convincing people to change their language, I don't think we're ever going to win that one, and I don't mind. On Let's Encrypt's website, we call it free TLS/SSL certificates, so people can actually find us
1: with the terms Yeah, you got to do that for Google searches, right? Because people yeah. are going to be searching for SSL even if that's not necessarily the protocol being used nowadays.
2: But you know, I also try to say HTTPS more than either of those because that's like the thing that people who are not technical recognize more. You know, it's the thing mm-hmm. that shows up in their URL bar.
0: If I'm being honest, the reason I don't say it is because I, I can't say it. It just never comes out right. Yeah. Like HTTPS, it's it's always right. jacked up. So I just speed through the two Ts and the S is sort of like slurred. And so that's like why I'm happy about H2. Just, you can shorten HTTP2 to H2 and, you know, there's no version of great. that for, for this. Hs. So no. about the past, you know, I
1: think
2: so when uh, the first web protocols and other internet protocols were developed you know it was in this very trusting environment it mm. was like a relatively small group of people in academia you know the idea that somebody would be malicious was you know i think not unconsidered but it was relatively distant in most people's mind but i think the you know much more interesting pro- question is like why didn't the point we're at today why didn't we get here a lot earlier yeah um you know ssl was developed in the 90s and later became TLS. Um, and so why didn't it just take off like wildfire? Um, you know some of it was CPU costs, but I think a big portion of the blame lands at the feet of the US government and uh, something we call the crypto wars. Oh or now we have to call them the first crypto wars. Uh, so NSA, uh, and GCHQ and other spy agencies were kind of used to having a lock on cryptography. You know, they were the cryptography experts. You know, ordinary people wouldn't have access to encryption. Uh, you know, they wouldn't even know the algorithms. But with computers really taking off, you had a lot more academics researching these questions of how do we make things safe? And uh, they started uh, discovering good crypto algorithms. Some had already been secretly discovered inside spy agencies. Uh, Some were new. Uh, And so the U.S. government decided, you know, these secrets, these abilities to keep secrets are too dangerous for us. You know, we don't want people outside the U.S. to be able to keep their stuff safe. So we're going to pass arms regulations. We're literally going to say cryptography is a munition and it's governed under ITAR, Uh, which is also ARM's export rules. And so if you write crypto software, or even if you write about cryptography, you can't export that from the United States unless it's intentionally weakened to the point where we think the NSA can break it. Wow! So if you downloaded Netscape in the 90s, you had this awful experience where it's like, do you want to download the safe Netscape with all the strong cryptography in it? Or do you want to download the unsafe Netscape with the bad crypto algorithms in it? And if you want to download the safe one, you have to like really be sure you're in the US and you're allowed to do this. And so this created, obviously, a ton of uncertainty and doubt in the software community of whether you know they were legally safe to implement crypto algorithms. And if they did, would that limit their market? So it really held back implementation for a long time. Uh, and it also meant that a lot of protocols like SSL built in these non-secure fallbacks. You know, so you could uh, negotiate a really weak cipher suite with Mm. SSL because you might have to if you were talking to a web server that wasn't allowed to use the strong crypto. Right. So this was actually a really big issue area for EFF in the 90s and to this day. Uh, And, you know, we took the position that code is speech, and it's actually a violation of the First Amendment to say you're not allowed to, you know, tell people outside the U.S. Wow. how to do cryptography. So, That's crazy. Uh, yeah, I've never heard it's that always, story before. It's always Jared. the government's fault. It's always the government's fault, right? Not always, but in this case, for sure.
1: <laughs>
0: is this new news to you, Jared, or is this something you've heard of before?
1: No, I've heard of this. I I studied the uh, information assurance in college, so I got a little bit of the history of of the whole infosec thing, cryptography. Read a couple books, so it's definitely uh, I haven't thought about it for a long time. But as Jacob was saying, it, I was like, yeah, you know what? I remember all that. Yeah.
2: So uh, we fought a really important court case, uh, Daniel J. Bernstein versus the U.S. government. I say we—I wasn't at EFF at the time, but you know, EFF fought this case and you know won some victories. Uh, it wasn't the perfect victory we would have wanted, uh, but you know now uh, you do have the ability to export strong cryptography, uh, and that really opened a world where people can develop open source software and include strong cryptography, uh, and not worry about violating these rules. Um, And so that's been really important. And I think that's a big part of why now cryptography has been burgeoning. Uh, And it's really a remarkable thing, you know, having lived through that time to realize that what we have in our web browsers is, you know, close to as good as it gets. You know, these are some of the, you know, strongest algorithms out there that we believe they are strong enough to withstand, uh, government level decryption attempts, uh, which is why when you look at, you know, leaks of how people are, you mm-hmm. know, attacking, uh, communications, it's often we're going to hack into somebody's computer so we get the bits before they're encrypted. Yeah. So I mentioned, you know, okay, now we have to call them the first crypto wars. Uh, yeah, say that yeah because, I was
1: going to say you tease that at the beginning, and I was like, ooh, that's a good one, and I've been sitting here waiting ever since for you to get to the current crypto wars. Yeah. So uh,
2: there's been rumblings in the government now, again, of, oh, you know, crypto is scary. You know, the idea that people can send stuff that we can't read is scary. And so we want to put restrictions on that and we want to, uh, you know, limit cryptography in various ways. Most likely, you know, the second time around is not going to look like the first. It's probably not going to be a matter of arms restrictions. Uh, we don't know yet exactly what that attempt is will look like but we're definitely ready to fight it and fight for people's right to keep their stuff safe
1: yeah
0: the bad part i guess i guess it depends on your perspective of seeing it. a bad part when i say that so don't take that as a really bad thing but mm-hmm. the, the point i'm trying to make is that it could be the good guys or it could be the bad guys right that want to keep their stuff safe want to keep it hidden so it's really hard to be it's a really fine line of saying I think everybody should have access, obviously, to security and secure internet and secure transmissions of their messages. It just sucks whenever it's the bad people trying to hurt you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's yeah. like a, a very tough position for any government to be in, not seeing that they're right or wrong in their their convictions or reasons for doing what they do. They have a very tough job to do to keep a nation safe, whether it's our nation or another. Yeah. yeah.
2: The, the way I like to think of it is as the right to whisper, right? You know, you can always like lean over and whisper to the person next to you and have a relatively private conversation. You know, we would never dream of telling everybody, look, whenever you have a conversation, you need to have it through a megaphone, just in case you know you might be a bad guy and right. the government wants to collect data of your wrongdoing. Um, you know, yeah. I think there are plenty of avenues besides weakening cryptography that are available to the government in law enforcement activities.
1: Yeah, agreed. Let's talk about the future a little bit. So, you know, this ambitious goal, encrypting the entire web. Uh, recently, saw an article. And I haven't found it again, but I believe it was a, within the last two weeks that maybe we're about 50% there. 50% of sites are HTTPS. Um, Jacob, do you have uh, other data than that, or does that sound about fair?
2: Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, if you go to the Let's Encrypt website, you know, we have a stats page,
1: and there's oh.
2: you know two main graphs that we care the most about. You know, one is how many certificates we've issued and for how many domains. Uh, that shows kind of how many people have helped. But uh, the other one that's you know, arguably our most important metric is what percent of page loads happen over HTTPS. And we get that from uh, Firefox telemetry data. So Firefox users can say, yes, I want to share some data with Firefox to help them make the product better. And one of those is how many of their page loads are over HTTPS. hmm and so we've been tracking that for a while now, and it finally crossed uh, 50%. Um, I think in February or January, it's now up around 51%, uh, which is really heartening. Uh, someone asked me the other day, you know, how, will, how will you know when you're done? How will you know when you've succeeded? And easy answer, uh, when that number reaches 100%. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> May I live the that long? saturation. Yeah. That's,
0: That's why you do it. it.
2: But you know, I think that that rate of change has been going up, and I like to think Let's Encrypt has had a big part in that.
0: Well, I mean, to get to that kind of position, though, to even get to one hundred percent or even fifty percent, you know, it takes a lot of effort. And I guess a question behind the scenes here is like, how does this happen financially? Like, how do you fund making this possible? Is it through donations, nonprofit? You know, collaborative partnerships with companies like Mozilla or others that you mentioned in this call here. How does mm-hmm. this, what powers Let's Encrypt? What makes it happen?
2: Yeah. So Let's Encrypt is uh, an independent nonprofit. Uh, the nonprofit name is actually ISRG, Internet Security Research Group. Um, but basically, ISRG and Let's Encrypt are synonymous. Same. Yeah. And uh, ISRG uh, gets all of its fundings from uh, donors and from sponsors, So, you know, we started out with some uh, pretty big sponsorships from large companies. Akamai and Cisco got us off the ground. Once we launched, a lot more companies came in and have been really supportive and have given us big donations. And so uh, that's where a lot of our money has come from. Uh, But we also, uh, you know, we don't want to be solely funded by companies and web hosts. You know, we love them. We love how, like, they're uh, broadening HTTPS adoption. But we really want to also be accountable to users. And so we do also solicit donations from individuals. We ran a crowdfunding campaign or a fundraising campaign uh, this winter, uh, raised a whole bunch of money from individual contributions, and we're planning to keep doing that on, on an ongoing basis.
0: Well, on that note, you can actually go to letsencrypt.org slash donate. you'd like to do that now, it's like a lot of options, 25 bucks through 2,500 bucks. whoever ever got that kind of money? Or uh, a one-time custom, which could be you know, a million bucks. Who knows?
1: Yeah. You know. Especially if previously you were paying annual fees for certificates. You know, you right. could just take that money and it's a, now you're saving it every year because of Let's Encrypt. Mm-hmm. Give a portion or all of it to them instead. And uh, it's a win-win. Yeah. I would and say a win, anyone... win win because there's <laughs> a lot of winning going on here. Who else is winning? Uh, everybody. The, the no. users are winning as well. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So 100%. Let's talk about 100% real quick because I have like a little side topic with regards to like the small sites. So mm-hmm. uh, you have a homepage, I have a homepage. You know, they, they both have you know blogs and kind of programmery homepages, right? Yours mm-hmm. is encrypted and mine is not. Now I'm a mm-hmm. I'm an advocate for encryption. Uh, yeah. What's the upside? So like jerasanto.net, it's got some you know t- <laughs> some tutorials, you know maybe an about section there's nothing really there we're not taking logins there's no private and there's nothing right it's just my home page mm-hmm. yeah what's the, so, what's the upside for me to encrypt that um,
2: you know I think uh, there's, there's there's a number of reasons in terms of upside you know access to h2 we talked about earlier in the show can make your site mm. faster and you need encryption for that if you want to use advanced features like uh, or powerful features they call them uh, for instance full screen, Uh, in HTML or uh, geolocation data. Browsers are starting to require HTTPS for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also an aspect of reading privacy. You know, if you want people to be able to visit your site and click around and not necessarily have spies know what they're reading, um, you know, HTTPS helps protect that. But I think, you know, the larger idea here is, you know, kind of herd immunity, right? I think, you know, there may be a lot of smaller sites for which uh, it may not be worth the effort right now to implement HTTPS, but mm-hmm. for the health of the internet ecosystem, we'd like, you know, the vast majority of websites to implement HTTPS uh, because that allows us to treat HTTP as less secure. Um, but of course, in order to get there, we have to lower the all the costs of yes. HTTPS practically to zero, right? We have to make it so when you're weighing cost and benefit. You're like, and eh, might as well check the box that says HTTPS. Um, so we want to make it zero effort.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly on point. Just thinking about my specific, you know, website. It's a DreamHost thing, right? Shared hosting, and I have SSH access, so I could go in there and get a free certificate with Certbot, and you know, get it all set up with. I believe it's Apache, but I don't even know or care. Uh, I might do that. I haven't yet, so apparently, like the, those goal, you know, those upsides aren't strong enough for me to do that. Um, if I got to renew it every ninety days myself, I'm definitely not doing it. That being said, if I could just go into my DreamHost control panel and click the box, uh, now what's you know, like you said, yeah, it's, the, the cost there. is zero to me, and so I really feel like once you guys get a lot of these middlemen, the hosting providers, the Herokus of the world, to integrate the Acme protocol into their services. It's going to really help that 50% get to 100. Yeah.
2: Well, I happen to know that uh, DreamHost actually does have an Acme integration. So they do have a box you can check. Uh, I don't know if that's, um, you know, it sounds like you have a VPS with shell login, so it might
1: not yeah, work do. on that. It might be. Yeah, I guess, be I guess full it's not host shared head. hosting. I have a VPS. So that yeah. being said, that's a great step. I mean, even just, I'll go check. I'll see if I can just turn it on. Cool. Sounds good. That might
0: great. just be a uh, little toggle there, man. Mm-hmm. Oh, so easy. I mean, that's the way you've got to make it easy for, you know, mom and pop web host or, you know, website owners that run a small business and all they're doing like, well, my site's just a brochure. So there's nothing special happening on there. It's just, you know, how do you get to my location and who who are we? And can you see pictures of our shop or whatever? Like they're not commerce. So, and they don't even know what the web is really. They're just like, we have this thing on the thing and it's the cloud or whatever. And you can go there and find out about about us and it, you got to make it so much easier for those people.
2: So there's one other feature topic I'd like to talk about if you guys feel like sure. we have time. Do it, man. Open it up. So uh, one of the things I see is the most exciting thing in the future of HTTPS is called CT certificate transparency. Um, one of the things we've seen in the past is, you know, sometimes certificate authorities screw up, you know, they issue a cert that they shouldn't have, or they get hacked. And how do we know about that? Right. the, uh, CA ecosystem is a little funny because cas can issue a certificate independently they don't have to tell anybody and it's trusted by billions of browsers all around the world um, and it's possible that you know if you were issuing a malicious certificate you know a fake cert for say add-ons.mozilla.org you could uh, serve that to only a small set of users uh, such that no one else in the world would ever see it and for those users, you'd be able to man in the middle what should be a secure connection and serve them some malicious software
1: huh.
2: or steal their passwords. Um, and so you know, one of the uh, big examples of this, it's actually happened. Somebody issued some uh, malicious search for add-ons.mozilla.org, mail.google.com, uh, I think back in 2010 or
0: 2011.
2: Mm. Um, and there you know, there have been any number of misissuances since then. Um, and they're caught in various ways but kind of by chance and happenstance or in some cases because um chrome has telemetry that will notice certificates that it doesn't expect for certain sites mm. uh but ideally we want to generalize that right and when you issue a cert that's going to be publicly trusted you should have to tell the world about it uh so certificate transparency uh is uh based on the scheme of logs Uh, so when a CA logs a certificate, uh, when a CA issues a certificate, they can log it to, uh, a number of CT logs. Uh, and those logs are kept honest by, uh, essentially a blockchain. Um, they use a Merkle tree internally to give themselves this append only property so that if a log is malicious and they try to present, you know, pretend that they received a cert, but not actually show it to anybody, um, they, in theory, would be detected. Hmm. So this is relatively new. Uh, I mean, it's been in the works for a few years now. There are CT logs out there, uh, and logging to them is voluntary for most CAs. uh, uh, For CAs that want to be trusted in Chrome for EV, uh, it's required. And for uh, a few other CAs that have had recent misissuances, it's also required by Chrome. As of October 2017, Chrome is expanding that requirement. So if you want to issue a certificate that's trusted by Chrome, you will have to log it to multiple CT logs and include proof of that in the certificate Mm -hmm. itself. Or not necessarily in the certificate itself. Uh, There are a couple of ways to deliver it, but you'll have to be able to prove that that certificate was logged.
1: Yeah. So I assume this will be coming to Boulder real soon, if not already?
2: Yeah, so... um, you know let's encrypt uh, really believes in transparency. Uh, it's one of our core values. And so from day one, we were voluntarily logging to multiple CT logs. Um, one thing we don't yet do is we don't embed the proofs in the certs uh, so that you know a browser can verify yes, the cert was definitely logged. Uh, hmm. And so embedding that proof is something we're planning to do.
1: Very cool. man, blockchain, FTW, like yeah. recently people have found so many different uses for blockchains. It's, it's very, I mean, this is a great, great example of great that. Great time for it.
0: I mean, we have right. a, you know, a much bigger need for it now. And now that the care and technology around blockchains getting more and more uh, mature, it it's a great time for yep. it.
2: Yep. And I will, I'm going to super nerd out here for a minute and say, it's not exactly a black blockchain. It's like a blockchain.
1: Like uh, a blockchain. Blockchain-esque. <laughs> We're running short on time, but do a real quick diff for us between blockchain and like a blockchain. Yeah, so
2: um, I think uh, fundamentally both use Merkle trees underneath. That's the Mm -hmm. kind of construct that enables them both. Um, Logs are kind of single operator. So they're just maintaining a list of things for themselves that are append-only, whereas blockchains are usually distributed consensus.
1: Oh, it's not distributed.
2: Right. Mm. So you have multiple logs. Uh, but each log is a world unto itself.
1: Uh, I thought that all these CAs uh, would, would be sharing so one as a blockchain.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's th- you know, there's some tricky trade-offs there around availability. Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm. But as long as a log gets you where you need to go, then that's right. Uh, <laughs> that's a weird <laughs> sentence. I never thought I'd say. As long that's, as a log gets you where you need to go, that's feel right. Like we're lumberjacks. Well, Jacob, let's
0: close out with this, man. Like you know. I'm sitting here thinking we've we've got all this great information from the show with you. And I'm kind of curious, aside from donating, because we, we talked about that. We talked about how you're moving funding forward in terms of support to Let's Encrypt. You have corporations supporting you. You have an option for the caring public to donate to support you. But for the developers out there listening to this show, they want to step in. They want to help. They care enough. They want to step in and make an impact. Aside from simply notating, what other avenues do you have available to those listening to the show that says, hey, I love this mission. What can I do to do to make this go further?
2: Yeah. So, you know, first off, you know, we're an entirely open source project. You know, it's part of the reason we're on this show. Uh, Boulder, uh, CertBot, you know, a lot of the stuff, all the stuff we rely on is uh, available on GitHub. Uh, We have uh, help wanted tags or good volunteer tasks tags on both repositories. So jump in, Um, you know, if you've used Certbot uh, and found it lacking or difficult file documentation bugs or bugs on how we can make it better, Um, that's always super welcome. Um, And, uh, you know, if you maintain a website and it's not yet HTTPS, uh, go thou and do that. Uh, And if you use a website that's not yet HTTPS, uh, email them and say, why aren't you HTTPS yet? I really wanna see this. And mm-hmm. if you use a hosting provider that doesn't offer easy, automatic HTTPS, uh, tell them to do it. And especially if you work for a hosting provider, mm-hmm. uh, you know, enable HTTPS, uh, make it an automatic thing that's on for everybody by default, um, and we'll get there. So advocacy is a huge part then. Exactly, yeah. Just sharing the sure.
0: message.
2: Yeah, I mean, the you know let's Encrypt has played a big role in getting us this far but way more than that it's just all the hundreds of people who have advocated for HTTPS over the years
0: well mm. said all right jake well let's close there man thank you so much for coming on the show man it's been a blast i uh, really appreciate all that you do don't stop keep doing it man
2: thanks very much it's been great being on the show
0: Alright, that wraps up this episode of the Changelog. Join the community and Slack with us in real time at thechangelog.com/slash community. Follow us on Twitter, we're at changelog. Special thanks to our sponsors, Linode, TopTal, and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, at the fastly.com to learn more. Also, huge thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for the awesome beats. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.